In this edition of the Futures of Work podcast, I was joined by Barry Eichengreen, Professor of Economics and Political Science at Berkeley University of California, to discuss his new book, The Populist Temptation, Economic Grievance and Political Reaction in the Modern Era. Recorded live at the Bristol Festival of Ideas, a year-round series of events and lectures by leading intellectual and literary figures, I began by asking Professor Eichengreen what motivated him to write the book and why now. Writing, writing a book is a, a, a long-term commitment. Um, this one took me a relatively short period of time, two years. But making a, I, I can only really make a commitment uh, like that when I'm excited about something, more than that when I'm upset and angry about something. So my previous book, Hall of Mirrors, was about the global financial crisis, why it occurred and why it cost so many people their jobs uh, and their homes. And this one was prompted by uh, Brexit and by Trump and by the populist uh, movements that we see in the US, in the UK, uh, and, and in Europe more generally. So I know everything uh, um, Brexit and EU related is charged in the United Kingdom. But um, the debate over and problem of Brexit does uh, resonate with me, just like Trump and what is happening in the United States resonates with me. So um, my parents were um, refugees from Europe. Uh, They immigrated to the United States respectively in the 1930s and 1940s. So I see the um, political developments in the U.S. generally and the anti-immigrant, anti other sentiment in, in, in the U.S. as disturbing. I think the um, European Union as an effort to prevent another war in Europe, that's how I understand its origins, um, has considerable value. So it, it worries me and bothers me that so many people in the U.K. regard it as part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So the book was an effort to really to try to understand those things a little bit better and insofar as I could understand their origins better myself, I could try to think about what kind of policies, what kind of institutional reforms, what kind of politics might uh, uh, address the underlying complaints of people who are uh, disaffected with the European Union, people who are uh, alienated from mainstream politicians in the United States, and, and in my little way, both the, uh, the political center hold. Okay, well, I mean, I think a lot of the context for maybe why you're here or interested in hearing what Barry has to say is, uh, is around things like Brexit, that's a big B word, and so I'm going to ask Barry a couple of questions which relate uh, the contents of the book to what we're going through in the UK, or we're about to go through, or maybe you know never go through. Um, and then at the end, I should have said this at the beginning, there'll be 15 or 20 minutes for, for questions from the floor. So please, by all means, um, if you have a question, uh, think of it. I'll hold it in your mind. So, I mean, we're often told here that the Leave vote uh, um, was uh, you know, kind of sparked by this group, the Left Behind. Um, and in, in a sense, Trump as well has been related to this, this group of economically disenfranchised 
um, working class voters. Um, I mean, in the book, you really cleverly weave the economic and the cultural together and, and, and try to um, understand the relationship between, on the one hand, identity politics, and on the other hand, uh, economic um, grievances, as, as, as the subtitle uh, says. Um, and within that, the kind of the geographical differentiation, so not just economic differentiation, but the fact that it plays out on a regional basis as well, and, and the fact that the experience of trade and immigration and technological change isn't unanimous in any one uh, country. Um, could you say a little bit about what, in your view, is the relationship between um, the economic and the cultural or identity-driven aspects of populism, um, and what, um, also what this means for the way that we respond to it as well? Sure. Um, can, can I first say what I mean by populism? Um, I, I think of populism as uh, anti-elite, anti-other political movement or leader with often authoritarian ten tendencies. So populists are anti-establishment, authoritarian, and uh, nativist or anti-immigrant or nationalist, depending on, on, on variant. Uh, there are, as uh, you said, Harry, um, two schools uh, of thought uh, about what um, generates support for populist politicians. One is economic grievances, people who are left behind by globalization and technological change, uh, people who feel economic insecurity about the future and, and, and feel that their government, whether it's inept, as people argue in the United States, or corrupt, as they argue in Brazil, their government is doing nothing about it. The second strand uh, emphasizes instead uh, social factors, uh, identity politics in particular. Populists uh, get support from people who feel that their once dominant values are under threat by uh, minorities, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, racial minorities. So there are these two different views that I think uh, historically have been in opposition to one another. We're understanding better now, uh, in my view, that uh, you, you get surges of populism when the identity politics grievances and the economic grievances come together. And that's why factors like immigration, I think, are so often at the center of, of, of populist movements, that it is uh, sometimes accurate, sometimes accurate, but always convenient for the dominant group to point to immigrants as the source of their economic problems. These low-wage workers coming from Poland are competing for our manufacturing jobs. Um, and at the same time, immigration is a source of, of uh, identity concerns, that these people are coming from other countries. They are racial, religious, ethnic minorities. So the two sets of, of concerns can come together on occasion in some sense. And I think that's when you're most likely to get a, a populist reaction. I would argue you can characterize what has happened in the United States in those terms. You can characterize what's happened in the, in, in the UK, which experienced a surge of 
uh, immigration after uh, 2004, when, when the country opened up to um, Eastern Europe. Uh, uh, you can explain what's happening in Italy at the moment. In similar terms, I think Eastern Europe is somewhat different. They don't have the same kind of um, uh, uh, reality in terms of immigration. But people there and leaders there voice many of the same concerns. So, I mean, you, you raise some really uh, important, almost counterfactuals to the, to the way that the the popular narrative has described what's happened over the last couple of years. So, for instance, the share of foreign-born workers in a given area was actually negatively correlated with the propensity to vote leave um, in, in the EU referendum. Um, and then also, I mean, and, and still the debate rages on about this, but there's at least evidence to suggest that post-2004 migration from the EU has had little negative impact on, on, on wages, um, or at least not a, a large uh, impact. Um, and also that you know anti-migrant sentiment is on the rise in low employment, relatively uh, equal, prosperous economies like Sweden, Austria, Switzerland. I mean, how, how do you explain um, you know the rise of, of, of anti-migrant populism um, and and what it thrives upon uh, in these situations where the economic factors are not are not present. Well, as you um, more than hinted, um, Harry, it's hard to tell a single story for all these different countries mm. and um, societies. Uh, my reading of the situation in, in the UK is partly that um, fear of immigrants can be greatest in parts of the country where presence of immigrants and therefore knowledge uh, uh, of immigrants is least. It's, uh, in, in terms of the economics, it's not simply um, the fact of unemployment, but the fear of unemployment, even if an economy is doing relatively well for the moment, people have good reason to feel insecure about the future and whether their kids will have lives as comfortable as their own, and that fuels dissatisfaction with uh, the political elites and uh, worries about immigration, whether it, it is uh, whether it is present um, or not. So I think part of the story is, um, as I said, not so much the uh, uh, fact of, uh, of immigration as the fear. Um, it's not all about. The economy. Um, James Carville, Bill Clinton's campaign manager, had that famous quip about it's the economy, stupid. If you want to understand anything politi politically, you have to understand the economy. Here, I, you know, I'm an economist by training, but thinking about this political phenomenon, uh, I, I feel forced to conclude, conclude that it's about more than simply the politics. Hmm. So a sense of insecurity, a sense of lost control in the in the slogan of the Leave campaign to take back control. Uh, I mean, in the book, you, you relate this this mantra of take back control to past examples, and specifically in the U.S. context, the, the kind of rich history of populism um, from the late nineteenth century onwards, the Farmers Alliance 
um, for whom the creep in influence of the global economy meant that suddenly they had to compare uh, grain or wheat prices with far-flung corners of the globe and the, the sense of powerlessness that, that this brought with it. Um, with reference to this sense of lost control, this insecurity about not having control over our lives or, or our borders or uh, our sovereignty, do you think that the control that the populist movements seek on both right and to a certain extent on, on the left um, are, are feasible? Do you think there's means by which control can be taken back in a world of global commodity flows, global production, uh, global rulemaking? Um, or is it selling something actually quite dangerous, which is that there's nothing accessible? And is, is there something we can do to at least bring back a modicum of it in, in everyday life? Where have I heard this phrase, take back control, before? Um, I, uh, economists talk about a fundamental trilemma. You can have, trilemma means you can have two of three things. Um, globalization, um, uh, uh, deep in, a, in, in, a, in a democratic politics and national policy autonomy. Which two of those do you want? The UK for the last four decades has been prepared to sacrifice an element of the third. So uh, I guess the, 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 the question then becomes how much globalization has to go by the board uh, in order to, to regain national policy. <coughs> so one direction to go, of course, is the direction that Donald Trump is taking, where in order to regain the autonomy to grow manufacturing employment in the United States, to support a thriving domestic motor vehicle uh, and aluminum industries, he, he wants to reimpose tariff protection across the board. Can you, you do that in a globalized economy? Um, uh, most economists would respond only at very considerable cost to yourself, that taxing uh, motor vehicle parts and components rather than importing them from Mexico will make the, uh, the prices of domestically produced motor vehicles much more expensive than uh, many of the benefits of, of globalization to consumers will have to be foregone. I think more generally, there are um, limited, uh, governments still have limited space in a globalized economy to tailor their economic and social policies in, in, in different ways. So you, uh, in, in, in the UK, have tailored your economy and society to have a national health service, which we don't have in the United States. A national health service under considerable strain at the moment, but I would argue not under strain because of globalization, rather under strain because of uh, disagreements within the country about uh, who should pay taxes and, and, and how much. Um, in Scandinavia, they famously have policies of flex security where they provide social insurance to the individual, protect the individual rather than protecting the job. And that's something that you can still do in, in a globalized economy. Uh, the UK's dilemma, I, fundamental dilemma, I think, is uh, uh, with the EU is of a, of a different sort, that you have to give up more policy autonomy than, say, 
the United States by adhering to EU rules over which you have only limited control. So I, I think there still is room for maneuver for policymakers there. They can tweak their social and economic policies at the national level uh, in meaningful ways, but they are subject to constraints. Uh, I, another way of putting the, the, the question would be, is there a scenario where, courtesy of President Trump or someone else, globalization is significantly rolled back and we go back to a world where we have democratic politics of a sort at the national level and very different economic and social policies in different countries. I think myself that uh, the, the progress of global transportation, communications, and so forth is so far advanced that turning the clock back on 21st century globalization is not feasible. What we can do is try to manage it collectively in a more sensible way. But that requires things like uh, uh, the Paris Climate Accord, of which the United States is not currently a sensible member. I mean, the way that this is being expressed in the rise of tariffs, for instance, I mean, you nicely captured what tariffs really mean is that, you know, like a lot of populist economic policy, it's not about real, or it, it's not about any sense of limits or constraints on what's possible economically, but rather the assertion of, a, of national autonomy and, and strength uh, historically. Uh, you know, whether there's economic benefits to that sometimes seems to come secondary in the history of, of, of populism. But on that note, there's some real food for thought in the book, which I think speaks to contemporary issues we're facing here about the relationship between trade um, and then industry and productivity. And I guess this is where the economist uh, really shone through it in the book. Um, I mean, productivity is one of the key policy challenges that policymakers are genuflecting about in, uh, in the UK. And I mean, we're staring down the barrel of an impending Brexit, but in the book there's some nice cautionary words about the unintended consequences of populist trade policy and the way that it has knock-on impacts for other aspects of the economy. Um, so, I mean, one example is that the import tariffs uh, implemented in the early 20th century prevented the, what you call the chill winds of foreign competition, uh, improving UK or pushing UK manufacturers to innovate. Um, only rectified, actually, when, when we joined the single market, um, at which point those competitive pressures kind of came in again. Um, I mean, what, if we think, if we think about that kind of, that path of, of British, British economic malaise and, and, and its relationship with Europe and its relationship with trade and tariffs, what do you foresee might be the unintended consequences or perhaps even intended consequences, good or bad, of, of Brexit for the UK's economy in this way? To answer that, um, Harry, you're going to have to tell me more about what the Brexit endgame will <laughs> look like. After, after all, uh, uh, ask a, a Brexiteer on the street or in the audience uh, whether they're free traders, and the standard answer is yes, we, we are uh, free traders, and by voting for Brexit, I was not voting to close the British economy. Rather, I wanted to replace this close relationship with the EU with a series of bilateral trade deals uh, between the UK and, and other 
economies. So if, if Brexit ends up uh, intensifying the chill winds of international competition and exposing British pr producers to best practice competition from a variety of different sources even more intensively than now, that would be one thing. If, on the other hand, um, Brexit doesn't result in that series of, doesn't lead to a customs union with the EU, a series of bilateral trade deals with other countries, but a more cloistered British economy, sheltered from competition with the rest of the world. Then I think you go back to the situation from the 1930s uh, through the end of, uh, of the 1970s. So the famous um, general tariff in the UK was in 1932. It wasn't imposed by a, a, a populist government. It was the conservative government's household remedy by that time, uh, just like it was the Republican Party's household remedy in the United States until after World War II, so the tables turned. But you got your tariff in, in, in the 1930s that limited competitive pressure on UK industry for the better part of four decades. Um, you once had a motor vehicle industry in Bristol, mm -hmm. right? That with the passage of time became <clears throat> less competitive and eventually disappeared. And the um, story economists tell about that phenomenon is it, it got fat and lazy because it didn't face foreign competition. So I think there also is, is a scenario in which you suffer that unintended consequence again if um, <coughs> Brexit uh, leads to less trade with the, with the rest of the world, world, less import competition. So there's a few different scenarios. Um, I mean, in the book, you, 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 you kind of go back to the tariff reform debates in the late Victorian period, which tended to, to, to split the country along, well, maybe not class lines so much as industrial lines. Do you, do you, see, do you see similar kind of, uh, I guess, interest groups within, uh, within the economy um, having an out over the future of Brexit along similar lines as that period? So we have to ask ourselves what parts of the British economy are likely to um, be hurt by Brexit, if any, um, and, and, and possibly demand compensation and protection in, in, in response to their difficulties. So that brings us back to all those uncertainties about the form that Brexit will take seems pretty clear that anything short of a customs union will be very bad for all those workers in the East Midlands employed by Nissan, producing motor vehicles that are currently being exported to the uh, continent. seems pretty clear that Brexit uh, of any kind will be bad for the city, for the financial services um, sector. In, in so far as a customs union will, will presumably not encompass uh, services, only merchandise. So I don't know whether a, a suffering manufacturing sector, which only employs 13% uh, uh, of workers in the UK, but a, a, a vis visible and vocal 13% will respond to those difficulties by demanding 
tariff protection, um, or w whether the um, it will be the uh, the city that will respond by demanding help from the government. Um, I guess my my view is that um, the uh, the city will suffer somewhat from loss of access to European markets. It's currently the place where the majority of euro-related financial transactions are booked and settled, and that presumably will not be possible, permitted by uh, the EU authorities anymore after Brexit. But the city has uh, po other powerful advantages in terms of doing business with the rest of the world, which range from its history. It's been the leading international financial center for a century and a half, and it's a hub for um, high-speed fiber optics, which is the undersea network through which all these financial transactions are conducted. Many things can be disrupted by Brexit, but submarine fiber optic cables are, are presumably not one of them. That insight actually captures quite nicely um, an aspect of the book, I think, which is rooting populism materially in, in kind of what's happening in the in, in the in industry and in terms of technological trends as well, which is specifically the second part, the latter part of the book, we come back to uh, quite frequently as, as, as a way of explaining some of these tensions that are produced where we're at at the moment. And uh, I mean, one, one of the policy proposals that you, come, that you suggest might act to react against some of, this, um, some of these economic tendencies uh, that are producing populism is the importance of cultivating soft skills more resistant to technological change um, as a kind of bulwark against uh, human obsolescence in production to the extent that you know, this is actually uh, possibly happening. Um, and uh, I mean, you show some skepticism actually about the extent to which we're living through this purported technological uh, revolution following the work of people like Robert Gordon. Um, uh, and, but also acknowledge, uh, on the other hand, that in the coal mining sector in the US, which we heard a lot about at the time of the election and the rise of Trump, um, you know, the loss of jobs there probably had more to do with new machinery than it did with uh, Chinese uh, import competition. Um, I mean, what taking some of those kind of those factors into into consideration, what in your view is the relationship between, on the one hand, um, the current technological advances, which forms such a major theme of public debate on one side. And then on the other side, um, the populist surge, which tend to be the kind of two major themes of, of, of kind of ideas and debate in, in, in the current time. Um, I mean, what's the relationship and how do you think they're going to pan out in years to come? Are things really as bad as a forecast on, on both sides or, or potentially as optimistic as their forecast on, on both sides of that? There was a lot in that question. Sorry. <laughs> um, let, let me start with the premise, which is that we've been talking a lot about globalization. We've probably been talking too much about globalization. If we want to understand what's been happening to the economy, um, if we want to understand the decline of manufacturing, and if we want to understand the political reaction to those developments, all of the evidence suggests that it's mainly, these phenomena mainly reflect technological change and not so much globalization. That manufacturing employment has been declining everywhere in the advanced country world. 
even though different countries are open to international uh, trade and finance to very different degrees. Um, the share of employment in manufacturing has fallen by half in the last 30 years in Germany, which is uh, famously a manufacturing powerhouse. So it's really mainly about uh, um, uh, robots, technological change, mechanization, going forward, artificial intelligence, uh, and the like, and to a much lesser degree, uh, Chinese competition. But the fact of the matter is that it's easier politically to blame the Chinese for unemployment here than it is to blame uh, invention and technological advance. It's easier to imagine turning the clock back on Chinese competition by slapping a 25% tariff on imports from China than it is to turn back the clock of technological progress. So to my mind, that uh, makes the challenge, number one, understanding how technology is going to affect employment going forward from here, and what we can do to shape outcomes in a more favorable way. And finally, whether we have the political capacity to do that last um, task. Um, I am, I'm really an economic historian with a background in economics and a background in history, and that alerts me to the fact that we have been hearing stories about technological unemployment since the Luddites for 200 years and more, and I don't see anything fundamentally different or more accurate about current warnings of uh, technological unemployment. So new technology does destroy jobs and in old sectors and activities while at the same time creating other jobs in new sectors and activities. Uh, within manufacturing, I, we can see how there are limits to automation or mechanization. I see them most visibly uh, a few miles down the road from where I live in Fremont, California, where, where the Tesla factory is located. So Elon Musk, in his wisdom, thought that he should mechanize completely his assembly line. So it's the highest tech automobile assembly line uh, in the world, where he discovered uh, um, there could be problems and he could that assembly line could be much more efficient if a number of the tasks were done by human hands. Humans have a tactile and mental facility to do some kinds of intuitive tasks better than robots. Ask your plumber or whomever. Um, I actually have a close friend, lives in San Francisco, but has a, a little company in Peterborough that makes aircraft seats and motor vehicle parts. The design, once again, was everything would be done by uh, robots, but the implementation is part robots, partly people, where uh, the, the task we have is to equip people with basic engineering knowledge and uh, other skills so that they can work with these robots that will continue to become evident uh, on the assembly line outside of manufacturing. I think there are going to be lots of jobs that require um, interpersonal skills, communication skills, empathy, 
there's a, a question of whether Siri and Alexa can be empathetic or not. You know, will the next generation or the generation after that provide the counseling services that your uh, uh, priest or marriage counselor or uh, management school lecturer provides to uh, <laughs> a, 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 a student so you can see I feel relatively secure in, in, in my employment in the service sector. The Japanese are developing robots that can provide uh, health care and support to elderly uh, people in nursing homes. To what extent can they provide the hands-on contact that feels to me like only a, a human being can provide. So equipping people to work in that world will require uh, providing them with the um, education and, and, and training to communicate with others, uh, receive that communication, provide the uh, uh, empathy and instruction and, and, and services that, um, that people need. Um, I think we've learned over a long period of time that there is an important role in, for government in providing that education and training. It starts with early childhood edu education. Uh, this is a problem in the United States where there exists deep and abiding suspicion of government, where there's a deeply ingrained view that government is always the problem and never which is one of the instincts which I think derives from the country's checkered racial history uh, in particular that is very hard to overcome even now in the 21st century. So I'm more optimistic about Europe's ability to deal with these problems because Europe has a tradition of social democracy that never took root in the United States, where government is part of the solution. Arguably, it never took root in the United Kingdom exactly either. Um, but uh, I, I, I do think that uh, um, dealing with the populist, populist reaction will require all of us to um, define the role for government in preparing young people uh, to live, live in the 21st century economic world. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Barry.